Acts chapter 3. You know, one of the things that I like to say, oh, by the way, before we get rolling here, um, I, I want to recognize a couple of people. Ron and Connie, 51 years, which day? Today. Wow. I remember when it was 50, I asked Ron, has it been a year since? <laughs> yeah, I guess it has. And then also, I think it's Steve Edmonds' birthday. Is that today? Today. Wow. Good. All right. Well, praise the Lord for that. Good to see you guys here. Yeah. Acts chapter 3. And hold your place in Acts chapter 3 and open to Luke chapter 5. I want to say something as we get going. As I mentioned, something I'm fond of saying is that when we study God's word verse by verse, passage by passage, book by book, we're going to get the full counsel of the word of God. And we're going to, we're going to study the tough stuff. And, and we do, and we have, and we're going to study the fun stuff and everything in between. I love the fact that today is a fun passage. I mean, it's, it's not deeply doctrinal. I mean, there's some great stuff going on here, but uh, it, it's just something that I just enjoy passages like this because I marvel at the work of God, number one, and number two, at how he uses common men and women to accomplish his purposes. And so as we look at this, I just want to, I want to invite you, I'm going to do my best to paint a picture of the scene that's going on here. I've got some slides that'll help with that (laughs) and uh, just enjoy uh, the scene that unfolds here in Acts chapter three. So uh, but backing up, I want to set the, the set the, the context here. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, we're going to talk about what happens when Jesus gets a hold of a bunch of fishermen up at the Sea of Galilee and turns them from being fishers of fish to fishers of men. Luke chapter 5, it, it takes place after the baptism of John, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He went off into the wilderness to, and he went through the whole deal where he was uh, tempted by, the, uh, by Satan for 40 days. And we're told that after that, he went up to the Galilee region, which is the northern region of the nation of Israel, and that he began to teach in the cities there and that he went from city to city. As he did, he was gaining popularity among the people. Large crowds had begun to gather and to listen to his teaching. Nobody had ever taught like this before. Certainly not the, the, the creepy religious guys from Jerusalem. And, and, and he was drawing people. He was doing miracles. And, and he was speaking things that just resonated with the people because he was speaking God's word. Uh, verse 1 of, of Luke chapter 5 says, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, that is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So after being rejected in Nazareth, Jesus was from Nazareth of Galilee. He lived in that region. And we looked at that not long ago where he went and he opened the scroll of Isaiah. (laughs) He read some things that we read in Luke chapter 3. Uh, and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And they essentially uh, didn't like the claim that he was making because he was claiming to be Messiah in that. And they wanted to 
drive him out of the city and off of a cliff. They wanted to kill him, and he walked right through their midst. So he was rejected there, and then he went and he set up shop, so to speak, in a city called Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he kind of hooked around to the north shore. Uh, Capernaum is a a, a small settlement there, Uh, been there a couple of times, and and there's not much there. Right now, of course, there's a bunch of stone ruins and uh, Peter's house, which the Catholic Church has done some amazing things with. <laughs> it's got a big glass floor. You look down in it. But essentially, this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And he's in the process of calling his disciples. And, and disciples, I mean, that's a, it's an English translation from the Greek word that literally what it means is that they're apprentices. Uh, I served uh, an apprenticeship I, I, many, many years ago, back before signs were made by computers. I was I would hand letter signs and do all that, and and I was I became a journeyman sign painter. But I had to do an apprenticeship where I was learning. Yeah, I was getting, I was understanding, but I was doing, and and that's really what a disciple is. So he's getting ready to choose these guys, and he doesn't go to university. He, he doesn't even go to rabbi school. He goes to the lake. <laughs> and I think that that's remarkable. It's, these guys would walk with him. They'd be taught by him for the next three and a half years. So in verse three, it says, and he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. That's another name for Peter, Simon Peter, uh, and asked him to put it out a little uh, from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Like I said, big crowds following this guy by now. Now, I remember one year, uh, I, part of when I was an assistant pastor in California, Calvary Chapel in Gridley, California, one of my tasks was setting up family camp. <laughs> and this one year, the only place I could find was this place called Philbrook Lake. And it was a real rocky shore and it had trees that kind of came right down to the shore. And we had a bunch of people at this family camp. And Sunday morning came and I was going to be preaching... <laughs> and there was no room. So I got a couple of the, the young ladies, and one of them became my daughter-in-law. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's like 10 years old. And uh, I tied a couple of uh, pieces of rope to a rock and tied it to each end of this little plastic sailboat I had that was about 10 feet long. And we put out a little bit from the shore. <laughs> and I learned that water is a great amplifier, I could speak without a microphone and, and every, and it was, it was fun. You know, all these people were lining the shore. And I thought, wow, that, that's just so cool. And I, whenever I read this passage, I think about that family camp at Philbrook Lake. So anyway, when Jesus said, verse four, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night. And caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now, I think it's interesting that Peter here reluctantly complies. <laughs> and I, I don't know about you, but that's sometimes how it goes in my life, where the Lord will press me to do something or <laughs> I'm in some situation and it's like, oh, I know the right thing to do, and I really don't want to do it, but I know that that's where the blessing lies, so I better, and all of that. Um, because those are times where we are pressed to trust what God is doing. And that's not always easy for us. 
who naturally walk by sight instead of by faith. Peter's walking by sight here. He's saying, you know what? We know what we're doing. We know how to fish this lake. We've, we've done this all night and there ain't nothing happening, Jesus. But he says, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> we'll go do it anyway. I identify with Peter's nevertheless. So in verse six, he says, it says, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now that's a lot of fish. This is the first time that Jesus would do this. He would do it later when Peter, as Jesus had said, stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which we looked at in Acts chapter 1. At one point, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And he's not saying, let's go fishing. And the other guy say, yeah, we'll go with you. He's not saying, let's go have a fun outing. He's making a career choice. And Jesus meets them there at the lake and they end up catching a big load of fish. But here, uh, catch the scene. Yeah, pun intended, catch the scene. <laughs> but Jesus, he, he performs this full-blown miracle in front of these guys, experienced fishermen who knew that fishing was slow. And when it was slow, it was slow. Now, when we were in Acts chapter 2, we talked about the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus did. And that those, the purpose of those was that they were to attest to both the messenger, who Jesus is, and the message, what he came to do. That's exactly what's going on here. As this miracle unfolds, the the lights are coming on for these guys, and Peter is identifying the miracle maker as the Messiah. He, He doesn't say it, but we can see by his actions, which follow shortly, that's what's going on. He's seeing that Jesus is the sent one, the the holy one, the anointed one of God. These guys were Jewish and they knew in the prophets, they forecast, they predicted that one would come. The prophet Jeremiah had identified him as the hope of Israel, the one Israel had been waiting for. In verse eight here in Luke chapter five, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish with, which they had taken. So Peter sees this miracle and understands what it means. And he echoes the words of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, when Isaiah had been taken up to the throne room of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord lofty, exalted. The train of his robe was filling the temple. And, and he gets into the, he sees this whole thing and, 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 and realizing that he was in the presence of God, Isaiah would immediately become conscious of all that he was not. And he declares, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Peter knew in that moment that he was in the presence of God. Verse 10 uh, of Luke 5, he says, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Uh, They had a fishing business together, evidently. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. The other gospels render this as, from now on, you will become fishers of men. So when they had brought in the boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. They said, we're done. They didn't put for sale signs on them. They just walked away. 
because Jesus had called them away from the nets. Now, here in Luke chapter 5, we see the calling also of James and John and Peter. So as we move forward into Acts chapter 3, we're going to fast forward to, again, the other side of this three and a half years. And we, we come to understand that Peter and John had, as was mentioned here in Luke, that they had been partners in a fishing business back in Galilee, in Capernaum. After the events of that Pentecost Sunday, which we've been looking at in Acts chapter 1 and 2, these men, as well as the other apostles, would be partners, but in a different way, in a different sense. Because now they would begin to fulfill their calling as fishers of men. Now would be the time when, that Jesus had told them all along as they apprenticed under him, as they learned from him, as he, after he resurrected, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see Peter doing things that, I mean, he is not the same guy. And now, uh, we don't know exactly how far after Pentecost this was. We know that they're still in Jerusalem. But here's Peter and John uh, coming into the temple. In Acts chapter 3, uh, verse 1, we'll go through the first three verses here. It says, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, these are the same two guys that were there at the lake that day. Uh, it says that a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Talk about alms in a minute. So it says here that it was the ninth hour of the day. If you understand the way that the, the Jews measured time, a day was from sunup to sundown, and it was split into 12 equal parts. If it was wintertime, you had short hours because it was still split, split into 12 equal parts. If it was summertime, you had longer hours. And so the ninth hour would be three in the afternoon. That's exactly when Jesus was crucified. It's also called twilight by the Jews. Uh, but it was the hour of prayer. At nine o'clock in the morning and at three in the afternoon every day, the custom of the Jews was to go to the temple for the hour of prayer. There would be the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, which happened at three o'clock. Now, what's interesting, I was looking at their prayer time here and how that was broken down. It consisted of 15 minutes of silent meditation, 30 minutes of petition, letting their request be made known and 15 minutes of adoration. And I was looking at that and I thought, wow, that's not a bad pattern for prayer. And I'm not going to get legalistic and say that's how we got to do it. But those components should be part of a healthy prayer life. Uh, that we, we just have, we, we meditate on the Lord, on, on the scripture, on his word. We, we give him our petitions and we essentially just praise him in our prayer life. We show our ador- adoration towards him. Remember, now, these men had spent their lives in Judaism. I want to make a point here, because their transition into the patterns and form of worship that was consistent with Christianity would be gradual. It is still their habit, and it is still the pattern of their lives to go to the temple every day. And they do, even though they are Christians now. They are Christ followers now. Um, it would be inappropriate for me to think, well, I'm going to go to church this morning, so I'm going to go to the synagogue because <laughs> that's not a Christian church. It's, it's, it's Judaism. 
But for these guys, they had just been filled with the Holy Spirit and they were still doing it. Now, the time would come shortly when they would be not welcome at the temple, not welcome in the synagogues because of their testimony of Christ. And we'll look at that when we get into chapter 4 because they get into trouble for doing what they're doing here at the temple. But for now, they're just doing what they've done. They're going to worship, they're going to pray, and it's not unthinkable that they would head to the temple to do that and to also to teach and to evangelize, to worship even. So I've got, he talks about the gate beautiful here. And I'll tell you what, of all of the gates, Jerusalem's a walled city, and ancient Jerusalem was a walled city. And, and, the only entrance to the city was through these different gates that they had. And the Gate Beautiful is, uh, it, it's a remarkable place. Uh, it's something that we see here in the book of Acts where it's called the Gate Beautiful. And, and so as we get into these slides, in the first slide I have here, it's an artist's rendering of what the Temple Mount would possibly have looked like in the first century. Now there's some debate back and forth, but I think that this is the closest that I've seen. Now, if you see in the bottom, just to the right of center, there's a bridge there, and that's called the Bridge of the Red Heifer, because on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, it drops right down into the Kidron Valley. And it's called the Kidron Ravine. It's a deep ravine. And so the Romans had built a bridge that came from the Mount of Olives, which would be out of the frame here, to the bottom right. And this drawing was drawn as though you were standing on top of the Mount of Olives looking down. So just so that you have a little orientation here. Uh, but I want you also to notice the columns that are lining the perimeter of the Temple Mount. I mentioned last week, the columns on the east and west sides were known as Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico. There were two rows of columns that lined the perimeter, except for in the front on the left side, and it goes out of the frame here. You see there's two trails of people coming in because there are two gates. Uh, the columns to the south... Uh, where the main entrance to the temple was, was known as the royal portico. Uh, and there were four rows, again, four rows of columns there because it was a lot wider structure. Now, the royal portico plays an important role because it was very likely, almost certainly, where the high priest Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas had set up the marketplace with the money changers and all the animals and all of that. That place that when Jesus went up to the temple at Passover that he went in and he turned over the tables and disrupted all of the activities there because they had turned it into a commercial enterprise. Uh, the money changers and the animals and all of that. And he said, you've turned my father's house into a, a den of merchandise. So that's a little bit about the Temple Mount. Now, in the next slide, there's a little bit of controversy about which gate was called beautiful uh, but I want, I want to point out that the text, as well as tradition, both Jewish and Christian tradition, hold that the gate along the eastern city wall is the Golden Gate, uh, also known, that's how the Christian church knows it. To the Jews, it was called the Gate of Mercy. Uh, and that's where, it, here in the second slide, there, I've got that little circle around it. Uh, it was also called the Gate Beautiful, as it's referred to here in Acts chapter 3. Uh, some call it the Eastern Gate. Another name that this gate has had over time is the Shushan Gate because it faces east and it was commemorative of the time when God's people were released from Persia after they'd been in captivity. They'd gone into captivity with Babylon. Babylon was overthrown by the Persians. And when 
they were released, they were released from the Babylonian or from the Persians. So uh, that's a little bit of history there. Now, the next slide, slide number three, will tell you it because, and you may see in some literature, some people have said this was the gate to the temple proper, which was inside on the temple mount. As you see here, this whole rectangular structure here is the temple proper, which is in the, on the temple mount, uh, in the temple courts. I don't believe that that's where it is. Uh, going back to, and slide four, going back to, I, I believe, I don't believe that fits the narrative here in, in Acts chapter three. Uh, it's obvious by the text that Peter and John had not yet entered the temple, and we'll see that as we go through the text, when they came across a lame man asking for alms. Now, the fifth slide that I have here shows the Temple Mount the way that it looks today. And if you kind of toggle back to the fourth slide and you'll see, uh, I, I kind of <laughs> I was fortunate that I found an angle of the Temple Mount that roughly fits the artist's rendering. So you can kind of go back and forth and look at that and see where the Golden Gate or the, the Gate Beautiful is located today. Now, um, it's on the eastern wall. Again, it faces the Kidron Ravine and then the Mount of Olives. Stacy and I, when we were in Israel, we stood across uh, the Kidron on the Mount of Olives. There's a big kind of church structure there. And I've got a picture. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. I've got a picture of us standing there and you can see the, the Golden Gate or the, the Gate Beautiful behind us across the ravine. Now, note too, in this fifth slide, the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. That's a, that's a Muslim structure. It's actually the third holiest place in Islam because also on the Temple Mount is called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's a huge mosque. It's underground. It, it's been, I've been told when I was there that it could seat 10,000 people. It's huge. When I was there, the, the Muslims had been pretty reckless in excavating underground in, on the Temple Mount and they'd actually poked two holes in the eastern wall with their back hose where they had pushed the rocks out and all of a sudden there's air. And uh, what they were doing, we went to this one ministry, that a Christian ministry that, that was taking all of the tailings. You know, if you dig, you excavate, there's tailings. That's your waste. That's the stuff that you don't want. What they were doing is they were dumping this, the, all the tailings into the Kidron Valley and this one Christian ministry went and they established these tents up further up in the valley and they would go and they would gather all the tailings that, that the Arabs or the Muslims are, are dumping into the valley and they were finding precious artifacts. I, I toured this place in these tents, big white tents down there in the valley uh, and uh, had a talk about it. And when I was there, it was during one of the times before they patched it that, that they had literally punched a hole in the side of the Temple Mount. So going on from there in the sixth slide, the last slide I have is, is it's a close-up of this gate. Uh, uh, and it was walled off by the Muslims. <laughs> There's a long history. There's a long controversy over this gate. I'll give you some statistics here. It was closed in the year 810 by the Muslims. Is it now... We know what the Jews think about this gate. We're, we're closing it. So uh, it was reopened in 1102 when the, during the Crusades, when the, the European Crusades, they were sending people to the Holy Land to essentially battle Islam 
and all that was going on there. It was reopened by the Crusaders in 1102, only to be closed by the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, a guy by the name of Saladin, after he defeated the Crusaders in 1187. So it was open for a few years, and then it got closed again. Now, the final sealing, uh, when they, they finally sealed this thing shut with rocks, as you can see, it's got stones there, uh, that was completed during the Ottoman Empire in 1541 by a guy by the name of Sultan Suleiman. Um, and it was thought, it's thought, widely thought, that it was a defensive move by the Sultan. In Jewish literature, this gate is said to be the point at which the Jewish Messiah will enter the city of Jerusalem, and therefore, in order to prevent this from occurring, <laughs> the Sultan closed the gate. Now, on top of that, at some point, the Muslims put a cemetery right in front of the gate. And, and they did that because they know that Jews have a real issue with dead things. And, and they didn't want, they knew that Jews would, would be ceremonially unclean and all of this. And so, again, trying to block the plan of God, essentially, uh, do I believe that this is where Jesus will come through when he returns? Yeah, probably. I can't say 100%, but I believe that this definitely is prefigured in God's word as being the place where he's going to come in. Um, It's just a remarkable place. That's why I give you a little geography lesson on that. This is the gate where Peter and John are about to walk through as they're, when they're walking through and they see this guy who's been lame from birth. So back to the text in verse three, we see the layman asking for alms from Peter and John as they entered the temple through this gate. Now, I want to I want to explain something about alms, by the way. It's not the same. If, if, if I'm in a parking lot and somebody comes and they're asking, and we look at that as panhandling, right? This is not the same as panhandling. <laughs> I want you to know in our day, it's not. There, the welfare system in Israel was prescribed in the Old Testament. And almsgiving was part of it. That you, do, you couldn't go down to a government office and get a check or get some shekels. It, it didn't happen. It was prescribed, and it was it, the, the responsibility for that was handed to the people. So part of the way that God had set it up was for the people to go and glean from the edges of farmers' fields during the harvest, as we see in the book of Ruth. Now, here we see a man who was lame from birth. He's totally debilitated. That's not going to happen. There'd be no way for him to glean. So his only option would be to sit at a heavily populated area uh, and ask provision from the people as they pass by. And that's what's going on. And the people would understand that. They would understand that here's a guy. He, he's, I've never seen him walk. He's been here for years, probably. Uh, and the gate called Beautiful, it was a busy gate. It was the gate, as you saw in the slides, that was the closest to the temple proper, to, to enter into, actually enter into the temple. It was also a gate that was right on Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico. So verse 4 Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. Peter locks onto this guy. And, and he says, and I have to think that he says it with authority. And he says it in a commanding voice. And he says, look at us. And I, I, I can't help but think that this guy, he got this guy's attention. Remember, this, this is part of the profound change in Peter. 
He's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's not only bold, but as we see here, he's merciful. He's compassionate. He gets that this guy is in need. Verse 5, so he gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So this guy has shekels in his mind, but as is so often with the case, and it was with Jesus in his public ministry, and that which these guys were involved in, God is going to do something way beyond what this guy is asking for. Peter and John, what they have to offer is so much greater than material gain. What God has to offer us, it sickens me when I look at guys out there that are making the gospel about money. It's so much more than that. It goes so far beyond that. Is God interested in my provision? Of course. But is he interested in what he wants to do in my heart, in my life? Infinitely more. Infinitely more. This guy's looking for support in the condition in which he was. God had something far better in mind. Jesus was going to completely change this guy's condition and in doing so change his life. Folks, don't let the parallels here be lost on you. We go through things. It's good and it's right to petition God in the midst of them. Absolutely. However, it's important to keep a heavenly perspective on the things that we're going through. It's important to understand that there are things going on in the spiritual realm that often we are not able to see. That's why we walk by faith. That's why we walk looking to him for the answers to the things in our lives that we don't have. The question. I think it's important, absolutely, to pray for the sick. However, if I'm made aware that someone is sick, but I also made aware that they're an unbeliever, that they don't have a relationship with Christ, what is my first prayer? What is the first thing I'm going to petition God for? Open their heart. What does it profit a man to be healed in this life, to spend eternity separated from God? As we'll see further in this chapter, Peter has the same mindset. He uses this man's healing physically to reach people with regard to their needs spiritually. And we'll look at that next week. We're not going to get there today. Uh, the people's, uh, his speaking to the people. We're going to just deal with his dealing with this guy today. But it's a great example of what it is to look for what God is doing in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of things we don't understand. This guy got up this day and he went down, he got carried down to the gate beautiful like he had every other day. And for him, it was just another day. But his life would be changed. What are you going through? That today's just another day and you've got pressure in your life. You've got a trial in your life. Perhaps it's health. Perhaps it's financial. Whatever it is, understand that part of God's design and part of God's desire in those things is to elevate our thinking, to get us off of the thing that it is that's, that's, that's burdening us and to get our focus on him and to see that he is the one who heals. He is the one. And he doesn't always. Oh, he does always. He always heals. But sometimes it's graduation from this life to the next. Because in that day, there won't be any sickness or pain or death or sorrow. But he's always working ahead of us. He's always working in ways that we don't comprehend because we look by sight. Just like Peter, when Jesus said, go, go out and let, let down your nets. <laughs> what are you talking about? Fishing's lousy. I, I, I did it all night. 
but he does it anyway. Verse six, then Peter said, silver and gold, I do not, this is a famous saying. I love this particular verse. He says, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. He goes on to say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now remember, Peter has said, look at me. And I picture his eyes just piercing this guy as he deals with him. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. How does he, how does he get, what, by what authority is he doing this? He's so certain. As I was looking at this, I was reminded of John chapter 14. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He had to say this to say in John 14, 10. He says, He's talking to his men and he's giving them final instructions for what their lives were going to look like when he was gone. He says, do you not believe that I'm in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative. I'm not making this up, (laughs) he's saying, but the father abiding in me does his works. He says, believe me that I'm in the father and the father's in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. In other words, I'm doing this, again, through the agency of the Holy Spirit because I am fulfilling my Father's will. He's telling his disciples uh, the things that he's saying and the works that, he are do- that he's doing, are the, uh, they're only done through his dependence upon the Father who abides in him. Again, through the agency of the Spirit. Then he goes on to tell them that this very same dynamic would one day be at work in them. In John 14, 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, when you see that, if it's King James says, verily, verily, at my old Bible college uh, teacher, he would say, right on, right on. (laughs) It's saying, listen up, pay attention. What is going to be said is really important. When you see that in the gospels, truly, truly, verily, verily, that means what is going to follow next is something you want to hold on to. Jesus says in John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Well, here in Acts chapter 3, guess who has gone to the Father? He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, I want to take a little bit of a a time here to talk about what he's not saying. He's not saying that you get to boss God around. Commanding rather than asking things to be done in Jesus' name is a favorite heresy of the positive confession bunch. And you see that. I see that on television. I I read about it with different groups. And and it's just not so. Um, in our, I'm going to read something to you. Our Psalms study that we have on Thursday morning, our online men's study. Uh, I was reading something from John Corson's commentary this last Thursday uh, to the guys. And it comes to bear here, so I'm going to read it again. <laughs> this is what Corson has to say. It says, it was because God said, let there be light, that there was light. <laughs> what the proponents, proponents of positive confession fail to realize, however, is that there was light not because God said let there be light. There was light because God said, let there be light. You notice the difference on the emphasis. It's not because God said, it's because God said, let there be light. 
Sometimes we treat God like a genie or a fairy godmother who is at the anniversary party of a 60-year-old couple celebrating their 35th anniversary. Congratulations, the fairy godmother said. I'm going to give you each one wish. What would you like? I'd like to go on a world cruise, the wife answered. Poof, the tickets were in her hand. What would you like, she said, turning to the man. Pulling the fairy godmother aside, he said, frankly, I would like to be married to a woman 30 years younger than I am. Poof, he became 90. (laughs) Corson goes on, he says, we asked for the dumbest stuff. And the Lord loves us enough to say, I'm not going to honor that request because you don't understand what you're asking for. Folks, it's not about positive confession. It's not about bossing God around. It is about petitioning him. It is about understanding that he is working way ahead of us. And those who walk by faith, if you have been walking with the Lord for any amount of time at all, you know that that's how he works. He doesn't tell us the end from the beginning. He's not under obligation to do it because I claimed it. He's sovereign. It's not a magic formula. In the word of God, names are indicative of the character of the person whose name it is. Here's Peter asking in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What Jesus is saying here in John 14 is whatever you ask that is consistent with the messenger and the message, the person and the work, who I am, the work I've accomplished, I will do. Has to be consistent with that. It's not, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? He's telling them that whatever they ask in his name, consistent with who he is, through their dependence upon him, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, that they would do the same and greater than he has. Look at Peter's words again here in verse six, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now the name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. And what it means is God is salvation. The name Christ, that's not his last name, by the way. (laughs) He didn't fill out a credit app. My first name is Jesus. My last name is Christ. No, it's not. That's his title. He's Jesus, the Messiah. And that's what it means. Christ means Messiah or the one sent from God. So when you're asking in Jesus' name, you're asking according to this. Verse seven, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Back here with the lame guy. Well, at least he was lame. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them. That's why I don't think it was the inner gate for the beautiful gate. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is a scene. Folks, don't let it be lost on you. This is a tremendous, powerful scene. I think it's a fun scene. I think it's wonderful to see this because here is Peter, not long before, trying to figure out what he was about, trying to figure out how he could do things in his own strength and failing miserably. And now, commanding, this, look at me, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he reaches down and he grabs his hand and he pulls him to his feet. Remember, he's been lame from birth. Think of it. If you've never, ever, ever walked, you simply asked a couple of guys if, that are walking by to help you out, <laughs> give you some change. Got any extra money? And the guy you're asking tells you he doesn't have any money commands that you pay attention to what he's about to say. And what he says is perhaps the oddest thing that anybody has ever said to you. 
Nobody was in the habit of saying in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, why rise up and walk. I mean, that wasn't a common thing. This guy, I mean, <laughs> you gotta realize we read this, but you gotta understand what's going on in the hearts of the apostles. This was new to them to command somebody to be healed at will. That is, by the way, apostolic authority. We don't have apostolic authority. There are differences. Talk about that in a later study. But <laughs> the guy you're asking, he tells you he doesn't have any money. And, 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 and then he goes and he says this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I, I would imagine for that moment between the time that Peter said it and the time that he grabs this guy and pulls him to his feet, that he's going, what on earth are you talking about? You probably have heard of this Jesus fellow. I mean, <laughs> you even heard rumors a couple months ago that he had been killed and crucified. And you even heard rumors that he'd risen from the dead. You don't know what he's talking about here. And, and perhaps he did. We don't know. But essentially, what does all this have to do with this guy? What does this have to do with me until today? Who are these two intense men? So then as the man who had said the, that strange thing tugs you to your feet, you notice something happening inside your own body. You had no strength. You, there, there was nothing there. Something amazing going on. Something miraculous. Something you had frankly stopped dreaming that would ever happen because you knew deep down it never would. You would never walk. It, as you stand, it has happened. As you stand, you realize that you can walk. Your response? Frankly, <laughs> if you look at the text here, essentially what it says, this guy totally loses it. He just loses it he, completely. You don't waste any time at all trying out this new pair of legs that you've got, all the while praising God for what's taken place. This is absolutely not what you thought was going to happen when you asked these guys for some spare change. The text doesn't tell us, but I can't imagine the scene without this guy sobbing as he praised God with tears running down his exuberant face. Uh, this is just, it's just a powerful scene. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now, Acts chapter 2, let's look at this. He, it closes with Luke writing about the activities of the early church. They, they, were, spent, they were going to the temple daily, he says. And uh, we looked last week at the fact that they spent their time with the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in prayer and praise. That's what we see in the last study in, the, in Acts chapter 2. Now, we don't know how much time has gone by from that time until this, but it's pretty safe to assume it's no longer the Feast of Pentecost, as I mentioned. This is sometime later. Now, the next feast wouldn't be until the fall, and that would be the Feast of Trumpets. So just, just out of just deduction, we can pretty safely assume that this is a local crowd. This isn't the people visiting for the holidays, which they had when they did the feasts. These are locals. These are people that live in or near Jerusalem, people who frequently come to the temple. And chances are pretty good they knew who this guy was. They'd seen him before, time and again. He was a regular at the Golden Gate, uh, the, the Gate Beautiful. Perhaps some of those in the crowd had even supported him. You have to think that they did because this guy wouldn't keep coming to the same place every day if he wasn't benefiting from it. So these people see this guy that they had been looking at perhaps for years, 
laying there, perhaps bent up, twisted up, and they see him <laughs> dancing around and, and crying out and, and being ecstatic. Verse 10, then they knew the crowd, knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, the Greek word for wonder is, it's the Greek word, it's the word thambos. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter five that we looked at. Remember when they hauled in the big haul of fish and both of the boats were going to sink? It says they were astonished. That's thambos. It's the same word. They're absolutely filled with wonder. They're astonished. They're amazed. The crowd that has just, they have seen this guy and they have known there is no way that this could be happening except. Now the word for amazed in the original here is ecstasis. It's where we get the word ecstatic. And it means an intense amazement. It means a focused amazement. They're not just like, oh, that's amazing. No, they're going, this is amazing. (laughs) This is something, this is unbelievable. Literally, it means they were beside themselves. So to use our our modern vernacular, (laughs) essentially what it's saying here is the crowd was blown away. (laughs) They were like, okay, too much, can't process. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. I I don't get what I I see it, but no, but you know, and, and I mean, speechless. For a preacher, that's a lot. But seriously, they, they just don't get what's going on. They're, they're blown away. Verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So as the scene continues to unfold, <laughs> now I don't believe the lame guy who was healed was, was holding on to Peter and John because he needed to. The text tells us that he had been strengthened. The word here means to cling. He was clinging to them. And it's the same word that's used in the Gospel of John when Mary comes to the tomb and she turns around, she sees this guy, she supposes it's the gardener, and then she realizes it's Jesus. And what does she do? She grabs a hold of him. And Jesus has to tell her, Mary, let me go. Stop clinging to me. Folks, I I can't adequately convey the power of this scene And if you think the crowd was blown away, try being inside of this guy, the guy that's there that has just stood to his feet for the very first time in his entire life. His response to praise God. These events were utterly beyond his ability to comprehend. He's clinging to the ones who had done it. That's why he's clinging. Now, have you ever heard of a flash mob? You look on, on, online sometimes, you'll see like at Christmas time, there'll be some people kind of milling around the mall, you know, they're next to the escalator and, and they're just kind of milling around and all of a sudden everybody kind of snaps too and they start singing in perfect harmony this song and pretty soon there's a crowd of people that gathers and then all of a sudden there's like everybody in the mall there. It's called a flash mob. What it is, it's a mob that's just like, you, you get a few people that are paying attention and now all of the people that are out on the outskirts, they look and they see a crowd gathered. It's like, what's going on there? And so the crowd builds up on itself and they go running in and the other people go, oh, look at that big crowd. And they come running in. Pretty soon, <laughs> there's a mob and it happened like that. That's what happens here. As the crowd grows, it sort of, it just takes on a life of its own because the people are now attracted by the crowd. As word of this indisputable miracle flashes through the crowd, we're told in the text that the people literally ran to the place where the apostles and this man were standing. 
there in Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico, that covered area that's supported by the columns running the length of the temple right adjacent to the gate beautiful. Verse 12, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. I love it. Peter's immediate response to the people was that of both humility and certainty. Both. He's very clear with the crowd that this miracle was not some parlor trick of their own making. We can derive several things from his comments. Uh, here, he, he says, why do you marvel at this? Now, I don't believe he was wanting them to stop marveling <laughs> when he says, why do you marvel? No, I think what he wanted to do was for them to take a look at why they were marveling. What is the point? Elevate your thinking. Get your eyes off the miracle. Look to the miracle maker. And we'll see that next week as we get into their response and him preaching a, a, a beautiful message to them. So, in the verses that we'll look at, he's going to reveal the source of the miracle, the reason behind their marveling. That's why he's saying, why do you marvel? The next thing that Peter says is, why do you look so intently at us? Now, remember, he had told the man, look at us. <laughs> that was because he was about to be used of God, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, to, to do God's will in this man's life, but now, when he's in front of the crowd, he says, wait a minute. <laughs> no, it's, that's not time. It's not, don't, don't look at us. I think it's fascinating because he goes from look at us to don't look at us. But that's because he wants the crowd's focus to not be on what they were doing. They were simply vessels. They were the glove through which the master's hand had just worked. And they knew that. They knew because Jesus had said greater works than then what I've done, you'll do because I'm going to my father. And when I go to my father, I'm going to give you power. And he did. And now it's showing up. He elevates their understanding from having their eyes on the miracle to putting their eyes on the Lord. He's saying, stop looking at us. Don't, what do you, do you think it's, do you think we did this? Now I've loved the, I've always loved the line. <laughs> that person puts their pants on the same way as I do every morning. In other words, the Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't elevate one above another. At the end of the day, especially when you consider in the eyes of God, we're all in this boat together. Besides that, I was thinking about this in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talking about the human condition. He says, where is boasting? <laughs> what do you have to boast in? What do you have that you haven't received? He says, boasting is excluded. It's not part of it. And Peter goes on, he says, you think it's because we're such godly men that this has come about? He says, you think it's because of our godliness? Seriously? I mean, I, and I can, I can add things in, put things in Peter's mouth because I personally believe that this comment reflects it, that he continued to be very mindful of the limits of his own humanity. It wasn't that long ago standing at the enemy's fire. Wasn't very long ago, standing at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter, do you love me? Oh yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. 
Peter had lived through his own crisis of faith and seeing that it wasn't his power. It could never be his power. It could never be his determination. I'm going to get this done. Jesus had seen to it that his reliance would have to be holy upon, not holy, but holy completely upon the Lord if he was going to be used at all. I pray that as we are used by God, that we can enjoy the blessings of service. We were talking about that in our men's study there morning. I was saying, you know, you got to be careful that when you approach serving God, that it's not because you want, and, and yes, God blesses our service and we grow through our service, but you can cover up a weak walk with the Lord through service. It, it's, that's not how it works. Out of the, the abundance of the relationship, out of the abundance of my heart, because I'm walking with him, I'm enjoying my relationship with him. I now want to serve and fruitful service is the product of my relationship, God. It's not a means towards it. That's works. And the Bible says it's not about that. Peter's saying that here. He's saying, it's not because we're all that and more. It's not because we're all holy and stuff. Pastors deal with that sometimes. You walk into a room and the wine glass goes behind the back. And it's like, please. <laughs> I'm just a guy. I'm doing what God's called me to do. And that's what Peter's saying here. I'm just, I'm just a guy. I'm doing what God called me to do. Next week, uh, we'll look at the call for repentance that Peter gives uh, to this crowd. This is, now that he's got their attention, again, he's going to elevate it from them looking at this man to them looking at the Lord. So they're putting their attention on the Lord and he calls them to repent, to change their mind. We talked about that a bit last week. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about Jesus. And folks, if you're here or online if you're within the sound of my voice change and you don't know Jesus or you don't have a personal day-to-day, minute-to-minute relationship with him that reflects your devotion to him, change your mind. Repent. Turn. That's what repent means. It's a, it's a Bible word. It's a religious word. But, you know, it really does have meaning. And it's as though you're just screaming down the highway going 120. You got that speedometer pegged. Well, not anymore. <laughs> Cars go faster now. But the point is, you're just going down the highway and you realize, man, I have been living for the wrong reason. I have been living for the wrong purpose. I've been living for myself. I don't care about God. And all of a sudden it dawns on you, I really think I need to. I'll guarantee you it it dawned on this guy this day and his life was changed not just because he was healed. And when Peter addresses the crowd, I bet it changed their lives that day because he tells them, change your mind about God. He says, repent and believe. Turn from your old life and trust Jesus. He went to the cross. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you power. The power to live. The power to obey. The desire to worship as a response. That's the Jesus that we study here. He's not some religious mascot. We plaster on the wall or a flag or some other thing. He is a risen and living Lord that we get to be a part of his kingdom. What a blessing it is. These people would be changed. The crowd running to see what on earth is going on here by the gate beautiful. And once they were there, we'll look next week at how they would not only never forget seeing this guy walk, but a great many of them would never forget the things that Peter had to say. 
Fascinating. I love this passage. Like I said, I don't often go for, you know, and I won't preach just a feel-good message just for the point of making you feel good. But I feel good when I go through passages like this because this is really cool stuff. I mean, it's just awesome to see the Lord at work through these guys, these guys that just, if left to themselves, they just bumble. And I think, oh, Lord, there's hope for me after all. It's wonderful. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we just digest the things that your word has to say to us this morning here in this wonderful passage about this guy lame from birth and Peter and John and the crowd and all, Lord, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would be in an attitude of, of asking you to work in our hearts, work in our lives, Lord, work in our circumstances, even if they look hopeless and futile. We know from what we see here that that's never the case. Even people in the worst circumstance can have hope. So Lord, I pray that you would just work again in in each one. If there are those here that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day, the day of their salvation, that they would make that profession. As we saw in, in the Gospel of Luke, you call people publicly. So I pray, Father, that if someone is asking you, if they're turning from the old life, letting the weight of their life down unto Jesus, that they would tell someone that it would be real, that they wouldn't leave here and feel good and then be like that guy that looks in the mirror and then when he turns away, it's gone. But that you would produce lasting fruit in our lives through the things that we're studying this morning. We praise you this morning. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would receive our worship now. As we wrap up the service, we're just grateful that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.